All right, everybody, quiet down. Today, it's going to be a character that means more to the story than you might think on first watch. Years ago, well into adulthood, I was diagnosed with a very low form of OCD. For those of you who are not big on acronyms, that is obsessive compulsive disorder. In simple terms, I tend to have intrusive thoughts with a compulsion to do things rather than just a fleeting moment of remembrance. For me, it's not so bad. I tend to be task and pattern oriented. If you tell me that something needs to be done within a month, I am going to be mulling over that thing until it gets done. I then get a minor euphoria for marking a mundane task of my list that is not unlike that of graduation or a golden anniversary. I also seek out patterns in everyday things. I see the world as a series of puzzles to decipher and feel an itch that I can't seem to ignore until I understand how a thing works. For example, have you ever thought of the tune or a few lyrics for a song, but for the life of you, you can't seem to get the name off the tip of your tongue? You don't have enough information to Google it, so you just have to live with it until you run into it again out into the world. That's my day, folks. I am going to work and slave until I can figure out this little tune rattling around in the old noggin. It's an album cut from the 70s Shaka Khan album that maybe had a minor radio hit and play in the 80s while I was in the fourth grade. I bring all of this up because that need to figure out a puzzle makes being surprised difficult. If you're always looking for patterns and things, you find them. Once you find them, you see how those same patterns get used over and over again. My students will often ask me if I like horror films. I always tell them no for this reason. Horror, while a much-loved genre, is rife with tropes and cliches in such a way that if you're watching for more than 10 minutes or hip to the patterns, you know the movie before your first bathroom break. After that, it is just a two-hour practice of slightly creative ways of taking out teenagers. Side note, why do teenagers love to watch other teenagers in horror movies? That is something we should examine later. Add this to my chosen area of studying being literature, music, and film, and I tend to see around the corner of author's intent more often than even I like. All of this is to say that I am genuinely surprised by a movie, a book, or a song. It is almost euphoric. To not see something coming is really one of the great joys I have in this world. But I want to clarify that it is not just an event or a twist ending that can do this for me. When a story or a film is done well, or part of it is done well in spite of the whole, so that when you walk away, it creates this idea that wiggles around in your head. That can be an amazing experience. Let me give you an example. I've always had an almost unhealthy love of early John Cusack movies. Say Anything, Gross Point Blank, Better Off Dead. They may not be the godfather, but to 13-year-old me, they were damn close. I will not lie and say that I aged up with Cusack or that his later movies had the same kind of power over me. In all of his movies, to a point, he seems to be playing a variation of Lloyd Dobler, his protagonist from Say Anything. He is quirky, out of place, cool, but unaware of it. A person I could love and aspire to be. It was like all of his movies were showing the multiverse versions of who Lloyd could have been with one or two moments sending him on slightly different trajectories. The angle just slight enough to look inconsequential, but when followed to their end, 
would put these men universes apart. The last of these elsewhere Dobbler films, in my humble opinion, is 2001 Serendipity. Quick recap for the uninitiated. Cusack plays Jonathan Traeger, who we meet as a 20-something who has a chance encounter with Sarah, Kate Beckinsale's 20-something character. They have a great night hanging out together, but both are in other relationships. The chemistry is obvious, but the timing is just not right. So rather than move forward, Sarah's bohemian 90s pixie dream girl idea is to write her information on a $5 bill and spend it, and to write Jonathan's information in a copy of the book Love in the Time of Cholera, sell it to a used bookstore, and go their separate ways. If the universe wants them to be together, they will find these items and be able to reunite. If not, say la vie. Jump to the future, or present, I, I guess, and they are both professionals living on different coasts, about to get married, not to each other, but with the little twinge of a question. What if that other person was actually the one I was supposed to be with? Like two people who have also have OCD, this intrusive thought has not left them the whole time, and the film follows the hijinks of these two and their best friends as they try to find one another in spite of the universe for the rest of the movie. Thinking if they can just see one another, the itch will be scratched and they can move on. This leads to trips across the country, near misses, and a happy ending. What I want to focus on is the best friends. This is a comedy, specifically a romantic comedy. Comedy is really hard to do by yourself. There always needs to be another character to play off of. Someone to be a part of the joke, to make the joke, to react to the joke. Without the two best friends, it's just two people talking to themselves in that weird movie way. Cusack's partner in this endeavor is played by Jeremy Piven as a longtime pal who seems to have the perfect life and marriage. See how I said seems. It is important later. And Molly Shannon plays Kate Beckinsale's cynical friend who does not believe in fate or destiny. In most films, these characters are tools. They are there to serve a purpose of moving the plot along. In this film, to be fair, Molly Shannon's character is doing just that. There's not much for her to do other than be funny, which she's great at, while Kate Beckinsale is not being funny. But Jeremy Piven's character does a little more heavy lifting, and that's where I want to look. In the third act, the two men are flying back from what they think is failure. Cusack is dejected, realizing that he might miss his own wedding because of an ill-advised trip to find a girl whose first name was the only thing he knew until 24 hours earlier. It is at this moment that Piven's character drops one of the realest truth bombs in this or any late 90s, early 2000 romantic comedies. You are a jackass. You, you, you're my hero, you know? You're like my oracle. You're out there, man, and you're making it happen. Mm. Courtney moved out. We've been fighting for a really long time. What the hell happened? We just, we let it slip away, you know? That's the point. It, you know, it died. We died. What was the cause of death? Not enough of all of this, of this, of this, and not enough. You know, do you, do you remember the philosopher Epictetus? You remember what he said? No, of not. He said, if you want to improve, be content to be thought foolish and stupid. That's what you've done. Now, I want to be a jackass. What is amazing about this moment is that the character who has been up to this point little more than a plot convenience gives us the thesis of the movie. 
without his musings about the state of marriage and romance, without his suggesting that Cusack chase love rather than convenience in his own romantic life, that being alone might be better than having someone you know is not the one, the rest of the movie becomes a saccharine play out of tropes similar to most movies of the genre. Of course Cusack is going to end up with Beckinsale. Of course they're going to live happily ever after. But in this version, the wedding is not called off at the last minute because of the girl he really loves, Alla the graduate. No, like a grown-up, Cusack tells his fiance the whole thing and calls the wedding off. So when Beckinsale shows up like a much prettier Dustin Hoffman to put the kibosh on the nuptials, there's no one there. It's over. It's already done, not because of her, but because it's the right answer. Piven's character gives us the thesis to the movie and the path to the right answer, not the movie answer. Without him, this would be forgettable, and worse, leave us with that bad taste of people getting what they want at the expense of others. But not here, folks. These are grown-ups living grown-up lives while still having love and passion. God, I love this movie. Everybody, so I am here with a man who is a former teacher, actor, musician, voice actor in some upcoming things and some past things you might have heard. But his biggest claim to fame, his best credit, my younger brother, Alex Mitz. How you doing, dude? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. It's also probably important to note that I'm only the former teacher part. It sounded like he's a former teacher, former musician, former actor. It's like, no, I'm still That's doing fair. all those things. But teaching is... I mean, technically, you still are a teacher. You could go back and, like, they haven't taken your license or anything. No, and I still pay for it every couple of years. I still pay the $100 to, you know, just in case I ever need it. It's a pretty good fallback good career, call. you know. I mean, it's a pretty good, like, career career. But, like, of all the things, like, it's like, you know, if, if instructional design world ever bans me... Um, you know, being a teacher is a pretty good, you know, path to go back to. So anyway, our topic was a character that you thought was more important to the story than maybe most people would have thought on the first read, watch, uh, play, even if you want to do a video game. Um, and I kind of thought about this because you were actually the first person I thought of when I came up with the topic because we've had lots of these conversations being, you know, both TV, movie, and comic book music nerds. I guess that wouldn't be both. I'd be like all of those. Um, we've had lots of those kind of like sit around, pontificate conversations. But I kind of had in my mind that you would have picked somebody and you actually didn't pick them, which makes it even more entertaining to me. Like now I'm even more interested because uh, my first thought would have always been Seymour from Little Shop of Horrors because I know he's kind of your uh, acting first love. Yeah. But who did you pick? So I think I may have misunderstood the assignment because you said more important to the story. And I think... No, I, that's well within the realm. Okay, because the the <laughs> the ones I picked were ones that I thought like could have more character development. Like there's definitely more behind the person than what you see in the media. And I picked a, I picked a few. I picked Captain Hammer from uh, Dr. Horrible Sing-Along Blog. And I picked Rufio from Hook the these Peter Pan film adaptation. Well, let's start with Captain Hammer. So 
background of the story is it's a musical written by during the music the the writer strike right by yep. Josh Sweden. Mm-hmm. But it's a superhero story told from the perspective of the bad guy who's in love with a woman who's in love with the hero that hates the bad guy. And is also just like a huge jerk. Like the hero is not a hero. Right. He's he's the the kind of Amazon the boys minus all the violence and, and deep psychological issues. So, well, that's the that's the bit, right? Like, so I think I think you're right. I think you you're spot on with that comparison. It's Amazon's The Boys minus all the dark grit seriousness. But I think what makes Captain Hammer interesting in this context is the psychological issues. And so, like, you know, at the very end of the movie, what happens is is he goes to kill Doctor Horrible in a very non-heroic way with the death ray, and it explodes in his hands. And his whole bit at the very end is once it explodes in his hands and he, like, recovers from being stunned by this death ray, uh, he starts crying and starts, uh, you know, starts calling for his mother. And he he goes, is that pain? I think that's what pain feels like because he's never felt pain before. And in, like, the final montage of the movie, you see Captain Hammer lying on a therapist's couch crying to this therapist now that he's had this like revelation of what pain actually is and i think that's where that deeper cut for captain hammer could be is that really could explain why captain hammer is captain hammer and opens it up to like even more i don't know exploration of that character of like oh we realize now that captain hammer is this huge jerk but we now know that maybe he's a huge jerk because he literally has no idea of what pain is and like maybe that explains you know his origins and the whole bit too is like there's this whole thing of like he's not uh, empathetic or sympathetic for like homelessness and that all kind of ties together in a way that we never get to see well and that's kind of interesting when you think about uh dr horrible right dr horrible yeah okay because he's more of an activist in a lot of ways. Like he, he wants to take down the power structure that is the superheroes because, but he's in constant pain. You know, Captain Hammer's beating him constantly. He is in his secret identity, incredibly awkward and unable to do anything. So, and it's an interesting thing because like you would think, okay, so if Captain Hammer's the good bad guy because he's essentially a narcissist because he doesn't have any concept of anything other than himself. Dr. Horrible should be the good guy. He's who we're supposed to empathize with, but he's still kind of lousy because he has that sort of, I haven't, I've been in pain. So now the world owes me version of it. So he has, it's almost instead of having like narcissist good person you sort of have two versions of narcissism going simultaneously and the the felicia day character is the only one that's actually like the good person and they lose at the end right right and like i don't know and you know dr horrible's interesting even in in and of himself because you're right it's two narcissists battling dr horrible being the more i don't know good quote-unquote good one because you know he in in lyrics or in like small passing phrases that you're kind of that you kind of need to read into is that he's really all about disrupting the status quo because it just doesn't work you know it's the it's that whole thing of like 
a really good bad guy is a bad guy that you're like, oh man, maybe he's right. You know, like Killmonger from Black Panther. You know, that or the Joker. Kill, or the Joker. But I mean, I think Killmonger is a better a better one because Agreed. the Joker is just insane, right? Like Joker's, you know, the Joker does crazy things. Or depending on which version of the Joker, it's like, well, why did he do this? It's like, well, because he's the Joker. That's why he did it. There's no agenda. There's no. It's like literal psychopathy, where it's just right. why? Why'd you do this? Well, I just did. But like Killmonger, you go and, and you watch Black Panther. And even though black, and even though T'Challa is clearly like the good guy, and he's on the right side of justice, Killmonger comes in and you know lays out his whole agenda, tells you exactly why things, why he's doing all this bad stuff, quote unquote bad, because he he's killing people to do it. But then you start thinking about the reasoning behind it, and you're like, oh man, that's actually. I mean, if only he's going about this a different way, he's a hundred percent correct. Right. The message is right. The methods are bad. Right, right. Exactly. And in Dr. Horrible, it's the same thing, except you don't have T'Challa. You have just another narcissist who is is really in it for his own gratification, his own edification, rather than like being a good guy, which I think like in, mo in a lot of other literature that is not Marvel or DC, you kind of have that viewpoint of the, you know, the ubermensch kind of guy, you know, the Superman who it's like, well, if you were this guy, why would you feel empathy? Why would you feel sympathy? Why wouldn't you be a narcissist? You can pretty much do whatever you want. And that's it. I like the idea that like, it's, if you took that moment out, and that's kind of how, what I was talking about with mine in, in, in the earlier segment is like, if you took that moment out at the end, it, 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 it's weird. It recontextualizes everything that came before it. And if you didn't have it, you wouldn't have that context. You would just have Captain Hammer's a jerk. He beats up the, the bad guy, you know, and that's it. But then when you recontextualize it and go, oh, wow, he didn't know what pain felt like. Like we have an idea that Superman feels pain sometimes. Right. You know, but but like that that kind of interesting like, you know, 11th hour recontextualization of a character really then forces you as the watcher or the reader or the player to go back to every event before that and go, oh, wow, that's an entirely different thing now. It's changed my perspective. And that's that's a cool thing to do. And it's smart, you know, like it's smart. You know, I don't know. I think uh, this is like a part of the magician's code to always leave them wanting more. And I think, you know, for something like this, if you're following like story beats, you know, if this were Captain Hammer's story, this would only be the end of Act One for him. Like this is like him on like him realizing this is the catalyst that breaks into Act Two, and uh, you know you could expand upon that. And I think the smart thing to do is to not expand upon that. I think it's really good to leave that open. And you know, we're like with Doctor Horrible's story; it's the end because he got what he wanted, but he wanted it to get the girl that he lost. Fun fact, though, they were Joss Whedon was supposed to do a part two. Oh, yeah, that'd be interesting. That's actually why the rights to like a stage version haven't been released is because the whole the whole bit was that this was supposed to be part one and it was supposed to be adapted into a stage play. And then the rights never got released because it's like, oh, I'll, I'll eventually do act two and then we'll do a, you know, a part one and intermission and a part two. And then he just never got around to doing part two. And uh, yeah, no, that was a it's so good. It's so good. And it shouldn't be as good as it is. But it really That's is agreed. really good. So speaking of things that shouldn't be as good as they are, Rufio in Hook. Yeah. No, I really like... Also in also in Last Airbender. I just want to throw that out because you hit me to it. So and yeah. he was amazing in that. Oh, man. Uh, Dante Bosco? Bosco? Brasco? Mm -hmm. Bosco. I think it's Bosco. I think it's um, Bosco. 
No, I love I love him. He's so and he, wasn't he also Johnny Tsunami or something or Johnny I think so. Thunder or something. He's got a pretty pretty good little career behind him, but yeah, as uh, Zuko is going to be his big claim to fame. But for me, he's always Rufio, and Rufio is such a cool character because uh, for the uninitiated, Rufio is. Uh, Hook. Long story short, the premise of Hook is that Peter Pan leaves Neverland and then goes and starts a family, and you know, kind of forgets that he's Peter Pan, but then has to go back to Neverland to save his kids because they've been abducted by Captain Hook. But when he gets there, one of the things that he's forgotten is that he's passed the mantle on to one of the Lost Boys, named Rufio. And Rufio is just sort of this pseudo awesome character who's basically trying to live up to. Peter Pan, he fights, he crows, he has the sword that Pan bestowed to him, and he leads the Lost Boys. But he's a little much, I guess, for lack of a better word. Like, he's a bit extra. He's, he's, I think part of Rufio's problem is if, if this guy becomes Peter Pan, who's Rufio? Like, he's spent so much time being you know, the leader of the Lost Boys, that as much as he misses Peter Pan, what's his, you know, what's his use? He goes back to being, you know, another Lost Boy, second in command. And also, like, he was taught by Peter Pan not to trust grown-ups, and Peter Pan's now a grown-up. How do you deal with that? Right, and, you know, like, for things like this, I love stories that like drop you in the middle of something like i'm i don't know there are a lot of writers who are like if you're gonna write a story start at the beginning i'm like no if you're gonna write a story start right in the middle like i want to infer the history and the world and all the things that came beforehand so like any sort of character driven story where the characters have been around for a while but you don't get to see it all that world building and relationship building has is done and you as an audience member have to catch up I love stories like that. So, like, when you get back to Neverland and all these Lost Boys have really fleshed out personalities and functions and how they exist in the group and we just weren't there for any of it, like, you kind of get to assign those things in your brain, but you don't have to waste time building that world. And I think that's cool. And I think that's why I like Rufio, because in, in stories like that, I always think in my head, like, oh, this would be a really great comic book. Like, uh, you know, Star Wars does this, where they have the Star Wars comic book universe and they start, like, mm-hmm. fleshing out the time between, like, right after Anakin becomes Darth Vader, but all the way up until, like, episode four. Like, there's now, like, a comic book series of what Darth Vader was doing in that time. Right. And so I always think, like, what other stuff could we do like that? Like, where's a large missing chunk of lore that we could turn into a comic book or, like, a serialized story? I think Rufio would be a really good one. So, like... What was Rufio like before Pan left? Why did Pan leave it to him? Like, was he a huge jerk? Or was he really responsible and then slowly turned into the Rufio we know to try and be more like Pan? We don't know. But I think it'd be kind of cool to, like, see an arc like that. Or, after Pan left, you know, the adventures of Rufio and the Lost Boys. You know, stuff like that. So I think there's a lot more to Rufio, and you could go a lot of different ways with what Rufio could have been before and how Rufio became Rufio in the absence of Pan. One of the things that made me think about, which is kind of interesting, is, you know, the the whole idea of Hook is that growing up isn't terrible. Right. That it can be, but that you as a person will age and at some point have to, like, you know, keep some of who you are as a child while incorporating this new version of you and 
also a lot of real interesting concerns about mortality. Um, but it's kind of, it, Rufio to me is kind of interesting because one of the things, and it's Peter Pan in general is a really interesting character and like mythology because like I was thinking about the idea of, you know, well, why don't we jump in at the beginning? And it's like, well, it's kind of like why in, in the Marvel universe, we don't start with an origin story of Spider-Man. Yeah. Cause you don't need to, people already know the story. Like, you know, the JM Barry story is not the Disney story at all. It is completely different. It is much darker. Um, and so like hook is sort of pulling a little bit from both. But like one of the big things in the J.M. Barry story is this idea of feeling betrayed by your parents. So the one that we're most used to is actually a stage play called Wendy and Peter. And that's that's a totally different story than the Peter Pan novel. And so like this idea of Rufio and the Lost Boys really feeling, you know, deserted, you know, and, and when Peter comes, Peter's the surrogate dad, like Wendy was the surrogate mom. And now he's an actual dad. Like one of the things I, now that I'm thinking about it, one of the things that could also be sort of interesting is kind of the old family, new family dynamic. So he's there to save Jack. He's there to save Maggie, right? The children, he forgot about the lost boys. And one of the lines he says to them is, you know, I'll never forget you again. But like, it's kind of done in that like 90s baby boomer, latchkey kid, you know, lots of divorces are happening time. Right. And at the end, Rufio says to him, you know, my happy thought was having a dad like you. And it's like, wow, like, holy crap. Like that, that's a huge, huge statement of like, it's kind of like giving the thesis, you know, Peter was in charge of, the Lost Boys. He was the big brother to the characters who didn't have the parents. He had to be the one that took care of them. And then he left. Wow. Like, I got real deep real quick. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that's I think that's why this is a really good selection is because there's a lot to unpack there. And that's why I love those stories that just start right in the middle is because, like, you may not think about these things right away because you don't have time. Like, you're swept up in the plot as it's happening now, and then you're on this moving train. It's like, oh, I better catch on, otherwise I'm going to miss plot beats. Uh, but there's such a rich potential for history to be written around that. You know, and it's it's this sort of thing where I think, like, every one of the characters on, you know, from, let me phrase that, most of the characters, some of the, you know, the Lost Boys are there to be the Lost Boys, but, like, if you look at, like, Tink, you look at Rufio, you look at um, Hook, and you look at Peter, there's a lot of like, what is my role in the world? You know, and that's, and Rufio, sorry, and Rufio. And that's kind of the interesting thing. Like, what is my role? You know, Rufio's the big brother or the oldest kid who's taken over because the dad bailed. You know, uh, Tink is the, I'm never going to get from, you know, she watched Peter grow up and she fell in love with him. And it's, you're never going to look at me the way you look at her. And I have to learn to accept that. And I think it's kind of interesting that this idea of having to take all of the parts of your personality and make them whole 
you're not one thing, you're lots of different things is really kind of an interesting thing. And Rufio, Rufio his, is, you know, he was the guy left holding the bag. He wants a dad like Peter now that Peter's a good dad. Those other things, you know, like Rufio being the one left holding the bag, uh, Tinkerbell being just always longing for Peter who left. Um, and she'll never be... She'll She'll never be what... Peter wants and she understands that and she has to live with it. But I think like the other side of that was, you know, that, that there's this sense of, you know, you, you, you go out and there's this adult version of you and there's a kid version of you. And instead of it being an evolution, it's like a hard stop. And then, you know, this different you comes out and, you know, but the problem is, you know, you even go back to like older literature, you know, you start going to like Arthur Miller and you go, gee, Death of a Salesman and Hook have a very similar idea to them. One's just a happier ending than the other, which is if you live for your job and you ignore your family and you just generally kind of suck, you know, then you're going to be miserable. The difference is, is that he, you know, Peter Panning learns by the end, be, you know, be in the moment, like, that whole like live to work, not work to live concept, which was a huge thing. You know, you are your job is, you know, one of those things that I think like it's attacking much earlier than a lot of other stories did. And it's using this idea of the joy of childhood by using the main representation of it. But I like, I like this idea of Rufio is sort of, you know, the son that got left behind, you know, the son that was like, you know, I'm here taking care, you know, so because then that, think about that, that kind of recontextualizes all of the resentment. Like Peter Panning has to prove that he means it before Rufio will buy in. Yeah. Everybody, you know, all the younger kids are just happy he's back. Right. You know, and Rufio's like, no, I'm not buying it until you prove it. And it's only when he flies does Rufio finally go, okay, I'm in. But he had to earn it. You know, and if you look at like a kind of concept of family dynamic there, that would make total sense if Rufio is the older kid who kind of remembers everything. Mm-hmm. And the younger kids just have an idea of, you know, Peter was awesome. You know, he took us for ice cream and, you know, he bought us stuff. And it's like, right, but you don't remember that. He has two other kids. Like, we're here to save his kids that he left us for. You know, that's, you know, how many 90s kids have that thought process down, have that understanding pretty well, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, and so it's it's really interesting that Rufio sort of contextualizes that as, you know, and yeah, like the story of Rufio that we didn't see, I think would be a great movie and comic book and cartoon. And you could get him to do the voice. Yeah, you sure could. But like, because he sounds exactly the same. Yeah, he really does. Like, there's nothing. Dude, if you changed. watch on, he goes on TikTok. He looks exactly the I, same. I was just gonna like, say that 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 he has not aged either. No, and I that whatever he does or whoever works on him, they're both doing an excellent job. I hear he bathes in the blood of his enemies. I think that's, that's probably true. That's what keeps him so fresh. Just pirates. That's, um, that's kind of funny. I like it. Yeah, well, that was Point, half points. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love for someone to write that story. That'd be amazing. Yeah, like the you know just pan pan leaving, maybe exploring why pan left, you know, because it doesn't really you know, 
it kind of, yeah, you know, and so, you know, that I, I kind of want to see like the departure, like him telling them that they're going to go and leaving Rufio in charge. And do, does Pan promise he's going to come back or does he say I'm gone for good? And then what does Rufio do to deal with all of that? Like, is he is he the dog from Futurama that waits for him to come back? Or does he just oh. know that he's not coming back? You know, and then what does that look like from then to now? Right. And then like, the you know, the Lost Boys, you know, going, you know, seeing Pan leave for that other family, they'll never get to process that just because they'll never because they're always going to be that age and they're never going to emotionally grow out of. He's mm-hmm. cool. He took us for ice cream mentality. Like it's always they're always going to fondly remember Peter because they can't grow into that emotional complexity like Rufio has. Right. Because Rufio is well, inherently and, a bit older. So. Well, and here's the other problem is so, you know, and if you kind of do the whole, you know, YouTube uh, analysis, you know, video essay end of yeah. this, he leaves again. Like he doesn't yeah. stay. He leaves the other kid in charge after Rufio's dead and goes on and it's like, I'll remember you. You know, I won't forget you, but you know, it's an interesting thing too because he's kind of thrown their world into turmoil and then just bailed. Yeah, I mean, he comes back and you know he he leaves things better than before. I mean, Hook. I don't know. That is also kind of weird because he is going to leave without taking care of Hook, right? Hook kind of well, inadvertently takes care of himself, but he's ready to just take the kids and go and just leave everything as it was. So yeah, he was going to do it again. Like he was going to do it a second yeah. time. That's weird. I didn't think about that, but yeah, like yeah, the the, the hard part is it doesn't really. It, it, I think it suffers from the, 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 you know, the, what I call the after the second commercial break problem. You know, we've done, you know, in a normal TV show, you have 22 minutes, you have two commercial breaks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so after the second commercial break, you've got from then to the end of the show, it has to wrap up. Like you cannot, you cannot go 23 minutes. Right. And so there comes a point where it's like, okay, the movie is X long. We need to get to the end. Yeah. And so one I, of the problems is, you know, he needs to get home. Mm-hmm. Like there, they. I think you get into that paint yourself into a corner problem where like, there's no good solution here. You know, it's we're supposed to forget that he left the Lost Boys in basically what is now a politically unstable Neverland, <laughs> right? Like the bad guy's gone, but all the pirates are still there. Yeah. So they're, you know, Smee could be the next Captain Hook. Rufio's gone. So mm-hmm. what? what is Neverland now? It's, you know, the idea of Neverland is that it doesn't change. Right. You know, that there is a security to it, which he already destroyed leaving the first time. They now have a new security. It's, that's destroyed. And now we're back to, but I'm going to go home with, with these kids and you guys hang here. Yeah, and it'll ba- all be okay. It's basically the end of Pleasantville, right? Like now everything's in color and the world is different, and 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 I love how Pleasantville ends. It's like now what? I don't know. Yeah, well, Enough, and well, and I, yeah, I think that there comes a point where we are looking at things and going. There's a there's a concept in in like playwriting 
kind of so so to go into like you know there's eras of 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 writing or literature and we live in essentially the postmodern contemporary time before that there wasn't a concept of the inner life of of the character so like right. you know you watch like that really starts in like the 50s with like Marlon Brando and James Dean and like the idea of second scripting where you go well why would my character be here and what would they do and i'm sure as an actor you do that you know, yeah. when you're doing something. But like in Shakespearean time, once you're off the stage, you don't exist. We don't care what Hamlet's having for breakfast. Like we don't, you know, and so like all of that sort of painting in is something that literature majors do, you know, hundreds of years later and go, well, what what do you think the psychological aspects of, um, you know, Hamlet are? Right. That's That wasn't the case. It was just entertainment and it did what it did. And I think like, where we get to do that is sometimes the vagary of it. You know, it's like, yeah, Robin Williams might've sat there and second scripted and, you know, Maggie Smith playing Wendy might've sat there and gone, well, what, what would Wendy be feeling based on all of these things that aren't on the screen right now? And we get to do that too, you know, but I think you're right. Like there was a point where things started getting taken seriously as mediums, you know, so kids movies got taken seriously, you know, you know, the, the, you know, and, and I think like, that's where you sometimes run into the, the, now we look at things as being problematic. Like my kids love the sandlot now. And there's certain parts where I'm like, let's just skip this part. You know, like the whole Wendy peppercorn part is just like, okay, let's just skip this part because right. I don't want to explain why that wasn't okay. You know, or, you know, things like that. But, you know, or like my little daughter who loves baseball and they're like, you play ball like a girl. And I'm like, let's skip that part because now we do kind of think of those things and go, Oh, what is the implication of this character? And we do it in real time as things are being made as opposed to back then where it was just like, who cares? Just get to the next scene. You know, like it's, I'm making a movie, it'll be fine. Like no one's gonna think about this. It was kind right. of limited to English majors and now it's, you know, with the advent of podcasts like this one mm -hmm. and YouTube, you have everybody going, hey, wait, what about this? And so that's kind of an interesting thing. Kind of the goal of this actually. So anyway, that's going to be the end of our show for today. I want to say thank you to my little brother, Alex Mitz, for recording conversations we would normally be having at Starbucks. Mm -hmm. um, thank you very much, and see you guys next week. Good night, everybody.